All right. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out, open them up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. If you need a Bible, Greg has got a few in his hands. Just raise your hand and he'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to be looking at the first, first 13 verses this morning. Anybody else need a Bible? Just raise your hand up. We'll get one to you. All good? All right. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 13, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for you and us and you, but go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The title of my message this morning is, Are You Ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you for bringing Sean out and the sweet time of worship that we've had. And we want to just continue to worship you, Lord, through the study of your word. We pray, God, that as we dig in, Lord, you'd give us not only understanding but application in our lives. That we might be drawn closer into our relationship with you, transformed by the renewing of our minds, Lord that we would become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Jesus. Maybe they don't know you. They've never had their sin forgiven. They're not born again. Father, would you especially touch their heart today. We thank you for our time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever you start a series on the last days, you talk about, prophecy like we have had in Matthew 24 and on into 25 as we are to get together today. People get very excited about it. And we want to hear about Armageddon and the Antichrist and, and, and the second coming and the rapture and all the rest. And it's an exciting time and that's great. But the whole point of studying Bible prophecy is to seek to be ready for his return and to live a godly life. So, are you ready? We get that question asked a lot, don't we? Maybe you're at a restaurant and you're looking at the menu and the server comes by. Are you ready to order? And you're not ready, but you don't want to tell them you're not ready because if they go away, they may not come back for another hour or so. You're going, uh, yeah, 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 uh, uh, okay, right. So you panic. Almost. I think I am. Maybe. But you're really not because there's so many choices in the menu. Have you ever been to Cheesecake Factory? I mean, it's like a 300-page menu. And you're going, uh, you know what? Just pick me something for me. I'll eat it. Or maybe you're running late, you know, and, and, and you as a husband, you're waiting for your wife to come out of the bedroom from getting dressed. And, and you say to your wife, are, are you ready yet? 
and, and, and she says, almost. Let me tell you guys that are married. The proper English translation to the word almost means one hour minimum. Okay, that means you got a little more time to go. In the same way, there, there are those, you know, that are almost Christians running around. Now, you really can't be an almost Christian. Okay, I mean, you either are or you're not. It's like being almost pregnant. You know, you can, can't be almost pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. By the way, never ask a woman if she do unless you have scientific proof beyond doubt that, 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 that she is. And I say this from experience. I did this many, many years ago. I was, I was working for the post office, and I hadn't seen this girl for a long time, and she used to work in the post office. And I come driving up, and, and she comes out to the box. And I says, oh, what do you do? She says, I'm not pregnant. What do you say? How do you recover from that? I, I mean, uh, I just told you you were fat. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to recover. So you just leave. But to know you, you might be late for work, you know, you have a meeting at work and your boss calls you up and then you go, well, where are you? And what do you say? Well, I'm almost there. And you probably aren't almost there. You probably just got out of bed. You completely forgot about the meeting and, and, and you try to get ready really, really fast. So the question is, are we ready for the Lord's return? Again, the whole point of studying Bible prophecy is to be ready and to get ready for his return and thus live a godly life. Now, over the years, throughout centuries, many have felt certain that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. But he didn't. And I know when I came to the Lord in 1979, the Jesus movement was in full force. And and there were many that thought, this was it. The Lord's going to come back at any moment. And he didn't. You know, and some of us, I mean, I had at least a half a dozen Jesus is coming bumper stickers, you know, and, and he, you know, he still hasn't returned for his church. He said, well, what's up with that? Is Jesus late? No, he's not late. He's right on time. We're just a little early. We're told in Second Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is right on schedule. And I think about that. I mean, if he would have came back 1979, 40 years ago, how many of you would not be here because you weren't walking with the Lord? So the Lord is right on time. He's right on schedule. And I would say this is there's never been a generation that has been closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we are right now. Now, that said, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse here in Matthew 24, and it's a response to the question that was asked the Lord, what would be the sign of her coming in the end of the age? And there are a number of signs that we looked at that we told would happen that would precede his second coming, including the emergence of this coming world leader, the Antichrist, the tribulation period, the regathering of the nation of Israel, uh, the increasing isolation of the nation of Israel, uh, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple we looked at. Also, there would be earthquakes and so forth. So these are all signs of the times as we see these things begin to take form and take shape that it was the beginning of birth pains. But we also know that the Bible promises that, that, that are to, to God departed His Spirit on Israel once again. But before that can happen, the Bible tells us in Romans eleven twenty five that we as a church, we have to be removed. We have to be taken out of the way. Romans eleven twenty five says, For I desire, do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wiser in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That can be better translated, until the full gathering of the Gentiles has come in. 
So before God can do the work that he desires to do with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, again, he must first remove us as a church. So anything that we see right now showing the closeness of Israel having her temple rebuilt, Israel turning to God in faith, shows us that we are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before. In fact, uh, back in April, the head of the far-right quasi-libertarian Zehut party in Israel, Moshe Figlin, said that he wants to rebuild the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem immediately. I don't want to build a third temple in one or two years. I want to build it now, he said, at a Mariv Jerusalem post-conference in Tel Aviv. He went on to say at the end of his speech, to build the temple, I need support. I can't do it alone. Well, he's right about that. You know, we believe the Antichrist is going to come in on the scene and help build their third temple. We also looked in chapter 24 how Jesus said it would be like the days of Noah just preceding his return and how we, we pointed out there's very many things that, that, that we have going on today that are in the, like the days of Noah. Well, now Jesus transitions really to chapter 25 and he's bringing it back to the main point. And the main point is we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And Jesus gives us three powerful parables in chapter 25. We're just going to look at one this morning. We'll save the next two for next time. This is commonly called the, the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see four things this morning. Number one, the anticipated wedding. Number two, the ten virgins. Number three, the midnight call. And number four, the shut door. Number one, the anticipated wedding. Now, to better understand this parable, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meeting, it would be easier for us to understand the way weddings were held in the first century. You see, unlike today, you know, how you grow up and you kind of check everyone out and, oh, there's a cute girl over there, and you go over to her and say, hey, if you were president, you'd be Abraham Lincoln. And, and, and you know, and for some reason, she'd like that. And you start dating and, and you have your wedding and you have a reception immediately following and then off to the honeymoon and all as well. Well, in the first century, it wasn't like that. In those days, marriages were prearranged. If you had a cute little girl and, and your, your friend had a cute little boy and they were somewhat the same age, the father of the little boy would say, hey, your girl looks kind of cute. Why don't, you know, we, we plan that when they get older, they'll get married. We'll, we'll hitch them up. So growing up, that little girl down the street without any teeth is your future wife. It's already been decided. Your parents have actually committed to you marrying this other person that you may not even know. Now, a year before uh, you would enter into marriage, they would enter into what's called an espousal period where they were legally married, but they did not come together as husband and wife. So if by chance the husband would die during that time, then the woman was considered a widow, even though the marriage was never consummated. In fact, that was a stage that Mary and Joseph were in when Jesus was born. They were in that time of espousal. Now, what would happen, though, is, is that the actual wedding day, and the, the time wasn't set, so when the bridegroom and his father finished preparing the house, they would decide, okay, now it's time. And the bridegroom would go get his bride. That was considered fun if you could catch the bride and, and the bridesmaids unprepared. Now, by the way, the, 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 the wedding would be followed by a reception, a wedding feast that would last for an entire week. And guess where that reception was held? At the bride and groom's house. I mean, how would you like that? You just get married and all these guests have a feast at your house and they don't leave for a week. I mean, no, no honeymoon for the first week. I'm really glad customs have changed. 
But all the festivities would start when the groom went out to get his bride with great anticipation for this wedding day. And the groom went out and the people would shout, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. Now, if you were asleep, you would miss a big moment. So he may come, you know, he could come at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he may come at 1 o'clock in the morning. You just never knew, so you had to be ready. And let me say this, no one was allowed to walk the streets at night without a lighted lamp. So once a bridegroom arrived at the door, your lamp had to be ready. Now the lamps that were speaking, they're spoken of here were basically made of pottery, a saucer-like device, and there'd be a floating wick in it that they would light. Here's, here's a picture of it on the screen, one of them. Uh, to have their lamps burning meant that they would have sufficient oil in them. In those days, it was like, you know, a flashlight to us, you know. And so if you were to use this first today, it would be like saying, have fresh batteries for your flashlight. Maybe have your phone charged for the next day, you know. And so it's just to be ready. Now, this brings us now to point number two, the ten virgins. Now let's look at verses one through four. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. That word for wise is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's a word phronimos. It's where we get our English vocabulary for the word prudent, sensible, properly prepared. That is what these first five were. They were properly prepared. They were prudent. They were sensible. Quite the opposite of the other five who were called foolish. That word for foolish there literally in the Greek is the word moros, where we get our English word moron from, and so they're morons. <laughs> really, I mean, it actually means careless in heart. But the reason they were foolish, the reason they were careless in heart is because they weren't prepared, they weren't ready, they weren't thinking. I hope that never describes any of us when it comes to the Lord's return. Now what is interesting is that these ten virgins or ten bridesmaids are placed side by side in Scripture to show us just how alike they were, but how unalike, how different they both were. For example, they all had been invited to the wedding in the same way everybody is invited to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They all had responded positively to the invitation in the same way that represents all those who have, have all heard the gospel and in principle they have accepted it. But there's a big difference. Let me explain. By accepting it, it doesn't necessarily mean they gave their life to Jesus Christ, but they are warmed to the idea. Maybe they're even attending church. Maybe they're even calling themselves a Christian. But there has never really been a heartfelt, genuine commitment to the Lord. So here's where it gets tricky. All of them confess Jesus as Lord. Because verse 11 it said to him, Lord, Lord. So this is a picture of a person who in principle believes in Jesus, has technically or at least looked like they've accepted him and is addressing him as Lord, but they are not really a true believer. So why the contrast? So we can see how things can appear to be alike, but they are really quite different at the same time. And that happens many times in scriptures. We have the story of the two thieves on the cross who were right there, right next to Jesus being crucified. One of the thieves heard Jesus say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And they believed in Jesus right there on the spot and said to him, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, of course, I very, verily I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that guy was saved at the very last minute. But what about the other thief? 
He heard Jesus say the same exact thing, but nothing but blasphemies came out of his mouth. Two people hear the same message. One responds in an appropriate way. The other doesn't. Or you take the contrast of Cain and Abel. Both had Adam and Eve as parents. Both were raised in a godly home, relatively speaking. Both appeared to be worshipers of God. But as the story unfolds, we realize that one is a true worshiper and the other is not. So in the same way, we have these ten bridesmaids. They all sort of look the same outwardly, but five were prepared, five were not. Five had oil, five did not. Now what is oil a symbol of? Well, clearly it's the Holy Spirit. Because on, one more, on more than one occasion, the Holy Spirit is likened to oil or, or is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And certainly when you believe, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence in your heart, bearing witness that you are a child of God, convicting us of our sins, giving us, uh, uh, guiding us into all truth, empowering us to be that witness for Jesus Christ. So clearly without the Holy Spirit, you can do none of those things. So then these five foolish bridesmaids represent those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. I'll show no good, no go, nothing under the hood. It's a game. It's an act. It's not real. And the text makes it clear that the five foolish virgins never brought any oil with them. It wasn't that they had oil and they ran out. They never had it to begin with. The difference between the five wise and the five foolish is, is, is salvation. The five foolish virgins, they were not saved. You know, but, you know, these five foolish were not, you know, they weren't once saved, but then ran out of salvation. They were lost. They never had it. They never had the oil. They were just empty lamps. They looked useful. They seemed to give promise of life, but they never produced it. They looked like believers, but they weren't believers at all. Heard the gospel. Maybe they could quote John 3.16, but they've never really submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the greatest inoculation to the gospel is one who hears it, but doesn't heed it. So the person who's in the greatest danger is not the person who hasn't been exposed to the gospel necessarily, but maybe the person who's been raised in the church, been around it their whole life, but yet have never really submitted their life to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the, the vaccinations that you get today. You know, They actually give you a little bit of the disease so, so our bodies can fight an immunity against it. I think the same can be said for the gospel. People get a dose of the gospel and they develop an immunity towards it. Now, here's another interesting point in this story. Look at verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, what I find interesting is that they all slumbered and slept. They were all laying down sleeping. Not just the foolish ones, the wise ones also. So what are you saying, Tom? As Christians, we shouldn't sleep? Of course you should sleep. Just not during the sermon, okay? Maybe after service. I've been involved in, in ministry for 21 years, almost 21 years, and, and I know what it's like. I mean, you kind of fall asleep, and I have sympathy because I've been there, you know, and you, you're kind of listening, and it maybe gets warm in the sanctuary, and all of a sudden that head bob starts to, you know, starts to happen, and I'm, I'm just going to look like I'm reading my Bible for a minute, you know, and then, and then, you, then the plunge. I've been there. You know, maybe, maybe you're falling asleep from medication, or you worked all night, but you're here. But the truth is, some of the best saints have fallen asleep in church. But we're not talking about sleeping in church. We're talking about an illustration and the fact that in the other places in the Bible, sleeping is usually portrayed in a negative way. I think of Peter, James, and John when Jesus asked them to come away with him and pray as he was going through this anguish in, in the garden, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. 
And he comes back and, and he finds them sleeping and says, could you not stay up with me one hour? Or Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, when he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul's not speaking to the unsaved there, but to those who were believers, but were in a state of spiritual uh, lethargy and laziness. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. The idea is we need to wake up from our sleep. I looked up the word sleep in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it, it says this, a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. But doesn't that describe spiritually what can take place as well? We could be living with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place around us. It, it's a spiritual slumber. We need to be woken up. I don't know, maybe you've gotten a phone call at, you know, very late at night or very early in the morning, like it's 2 a.m. in the morning. It's never a good thing. But you answer your phone. And they say, hi, did I wake you? What do we always say? Oh, no, no, no. Why do we lie about that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like you were awake at 2 in the morning. You know, no, you weren't. Up. We deny we're sleeping for some reason. But here's something interesting to consider. Maybe the words wake up have more to do with some of us as older believers than the younger ones. You know, when you're a young Christian, you know, you're full of energy. Not unlike the, the, the younger person. You know, you want to go out, you want to do things for God, you want to win people for Christ, you, you want to change the world. But when you get older, you want to take a nap. <laughs> I look forward to this afternoon. <laughs> Naps are good, they're my friend. <laughs> but say nap to a young person and it's punishment. Someone older, yes, yes. In the same way, you know, when you eat a lot of food, what happens? You get sleepy. You know, I love Thanksgiving. But man, I, I also love the coma that happens to me after Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, this is great. So from that, we conclude that sometimes the sleepiest believers can actually be the best fed ones. Think about that. And the idea here is that, that you can come to church and, and, and you, could, you could hear a Bible study and be fed. And you go to Wednesday night and, and hear a Bible study and Tuesday night men say, oh, I mean, this is good stuff. Oh, this is great. I'm enjoying this. You go to women's study on Thursday morning or Thursday evening. Oh, this is great. Men's prayer breakfast. Oh, man, this is great. This is spiritual food. It's great. But if you don't have any spiritual activity in your life, if you're not giving out instead of only taking in, then you, can, then you can find yourself in that spiritual lethargy, the laziness, always taking in and never giving out. And we're going to look at that next week with the parable of the talents. But we need to realize that these wise virgins were asleep to, not just to the foolish, not just the foolish ones, and it's a warning to all of us to wake up, to get ready. The coming of the Lord is near. Now this brings us to the point number three, the midnight call. Look at verse six. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Now, it's interesting this parable would actually give us a clue when this happened. In other words, here's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. It says the bridegroom shows up at, mid at midnight. Specifically says what time it is. Now, we know, Scripture is very clear, that we do not know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. But we do know the times and the seasons. And this particular parable, which again, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, it's interesting to me that we're told that the bridegroom shows up at midnight because that really is an unexpected time for the bridegroom to show up. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does to us, an hour that you would least expect, 
mean, if Jesus would come back at midnight, I would say that that would be an unexpected time of day. For the most part, you know, at midnight, I'm, you know, at a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. I'm asleep. Now, what I think would be great if the Lord would return just right now, as we're doing what we're doing right now, Bibles on our laps, and then we're talking about, hey, brother, the Lord can come back at any moment. Poof, the Lord comes back. That would be awesome. But at midnight, a time that you wouldn't expect it. You know, maybe if you work a midnight shift, you know, maybe you're more awake at that hour than the other day. But in this particular story, these ten were all awakened at midnight with the sound that the bridegroom was on his way. He's coming. They might have rubbed their eyes, maybe moaned a little bit. What do you mean he's coming? It's midnight. See, that word midnight stuck out to me uh, here. Midnight. So I did some searching. The word midnight shows up 14 times in the Bible. And it always shows up with the connection of some mighty act or some spectacular demonstration of the power of God coming down on a particular group of people. When God was about to judge Egypt, in Exodus 11, 4 and 5, we read, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. But then he says, in Exodus eleven seven, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown into prison, we read there in Acts sixteen twenty five. but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to him. To them, And then in verse 26 it says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Let me give you one more. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. But, in verse 9 we read, But so that in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Boy, don't you think that would put a damper damper on a message giving? I mean, to fall asleep on the Apostle Paul is one thing. But have your name written down in Scripture for all generations. You see, that's something else. Here's a guy that fell asleep in church. But the good news, verse 10 through 12 says, But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? They weren't just a little bit comforted. They were blown away. They were blessed. They were comforted because they couldn't believe that this particular time at midnight that this Poor guy Eutychus fell asleep on Paul, died, and then he's brought back to life. You see, something that would happen at midnight tragically was replaced with something else good. That's the point I want to make. That is the midnight mark. It's both the end and it's the beginning. It's not only the hourly sense of the stroke of the clock. It's a definite end to a particular period in a person's life in the beginning of a brand new period. So I would have to say we are fast approaching the midnight hour. And I look around in this world and, and I think it's getting darker and darker and I realize it's not going to be long now. Why? Because it's always darkest before dawn. So at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Look now at verses 8 and 9. 
And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Now it seems to me that these bridesmaids, the five that had the oil, should have been more concerned with the five that didn't. They should have been paying maybe a little more attention to what was going on, maybe checking up on their fellow bridesmaids. I think in the same way, we can be sleeping away while people are perishing. Not just those on the outside of the church, but, but, but on the inside of the church as well. See, we want to be constantly encouraging one another, lifting up one another, exhorting one another in the faith. In fact, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews three thirteen and 14, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We need to be exhorting one another as we see this day approaching. So if you see a fellow brother or sister in Christ starting to compromise, starting maybe to slip away, God says, hey, we're called to say, hey, what are you doing? Come on, stay on target. Don't fall down in this sin. Let me help you. Let me urge you along. Come, let, let's meet together. Let's pray together. Let's have some coffee together. See, by the way, that word exhort, doesn't simply mean to correct. It also means to motivate, to excite. Yeah, sometimes people need correction, but sometimes they just need a little motivation. Come on, you can do it, man. I haven't seen you at church, man. I'm looking for you Sunday. We'll have, we'll have lunch afterwards. When was the last time you encouraged a fellow believer? The idea is to make it to the end because a lot of us have known those that have not made it to the end. I think of people who I looked up to spiritually when I first came to Christ, you know, very instrumental in me coming to the Lord. And now they're no longer walking with the Lord. How did that happen? Well, it's because they didn't keep moving forward. They got lazy. They started compromising. Then one thing led to another thing. I can't think of anyone that said, you know, I think tomorrow I'm going to just walk away from the Lord. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen overnight. No, they, they stopped reading the Word. They stopped you know, making time for prayer. They no longer saw the urgency to share their faith. And then going to church became an inconvenience. See, the bottom line is if you're not moving ahead in your relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're falling behind. And I've shared this many times. Our, our Christian walk is like a grease pole. As long as your hands are moving, you're making progress. But the minute you stop, you're going to start going back down. Thus the phrase, backsliding. Again, that should encourage all of us to exhort one another, encourage one another. Because of what happened to these five foolish virgins. Look now uh, at verse 10. This is our last point, the shut door. Look at verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Once this door was shut, it could never be opened again. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. There's no second chances. There's no other chances. Look at verse 11. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice what the Lord says in verse 12. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. 
Now, why did you not know them? Because they did not know him. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Or John uh, 10, 14. I am known by my own and my own know me. I mean, this is a, it's sad and it's a warning to be ready. Because there are just some things that you can't leave to the last moment. And one of them is, is, is dealing with eternal things, spiritual things. You can't put it off any longer. If you put off a decision for Christ, you, you are, in his words, moronic. It's dumb. You're playing against the odds because you don't know. You could drop dead tomorrow. I mean, take it for someone who, who does a lot of funerals. Be ready. And just because you're in church and just because you read the Bible and just because you call Jesus Lord doesn't mean you're ready. Are you absolutely sure that, that Jesus is living inside of you, that you've asked him to forgive you of your sin, that you're born again today? This is what we need to think about. I think one of the saddest statements in Scripture are found in this parable. Our, lamps, our last three states, saddest three statements. Our lamps are going out, the door is shut, and I do not know you. Could you imagine the creator of the universe, the one who knew you as he knit you and formed you in your mother's womb, the creator of the universe would someday, as a result of the decisions that we make in our lives, be forced to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. What do you mean you don't know who I am? Did we not, you know, build great churches in your name? Didn't we heal in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these miracles? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And it's scary and it's sad that there would be some that we know personally right now that are going to face this at the end of their life. That's why Jesus says in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And that's really the theme of this first parable. Be watchful. Be ready. The key to what was missing in the lives of these five foolish virgins was the fact that they went to sleep. They didn't have the oil. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure that we are in a state of watchfulness. We need to make sure that when we hit the pillow every night that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and nothing else. The world wants to fill our heads with all sorts of garbage that's out there. Allow God to fill our hearts, our minds with His Word, with His Spirit. Because tonight could be the spiritual stroke of midnight when the door is no longer open, when that question is no longer answered, when that which is being asked for is no longer given. You know, it's a gift, it's a sealing of the Holy Spirit in our lives that He sets us apart for Himself. The one essential ingredient that set the foolish apart from the wise ones was simply one thing. It was the priority of that one thing. It, 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 was, it, was, it was the Spirit in their lives. They weren't, they weren't smarter than the other five. They weren't better looking, better connected. They didn't have their own little group click. It was about the oil. Again, oil in Scripture represents the Holy Spirit. And you read about it from the anointing of David to, to Saul to Elisha, Elijah. It's a picture of the presence of God resting upon your life. Because it's only the Holy Spirit that can take the foolish things of this world and use them to confound the wise. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the lack of the Holy Spirit that renders the other five foolish. One more thing before we close. The wise one said, we couldn't give it to you even if we wanted to. You can't buy it. You've got to go get it for yourself. You know, I can't make someone a Christian. I can't give them the Holy Spirit. They, got, they, got to, they couldn't give it away. You've got to go. You've got to get it from the one who can give it out. And that is God. That is Jesus Christ.
who went to the cross, died for our sins, rose again, so that we can have life. That's why you've heard it say, well, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He doesn't. Only children. You don't get in because grandma was a Christian or your brother or sister or so on or your family knows the Lord. You only get in if you know him personally. And the only way to know him yourself is to respond to his loving invitation to be his bride. And again, to understand what he's done for you and what he did upon the cross. And he'll put his seal upon you, the gifting of his Holy Spirit. Listen, there's a, a, a huge difference between appearing prepared and being appropriately prepared. I think that the, the, the bridesmaids appeared to be prepared, but only five were appropriately prepared. It's a huge difference between hanging out and hanging on. What are you doing? Are you just hanging out in these last days, kind of waiting to see what happens? Are you hanging on in these last days and can't wait to see what happens? I like this story I found at the height of World War II. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for taking a stand against Hitler, yet he continued to urge fellow believers to resist Nazi tyranny. A group of Christians believing that Hitler was the Antichrist asked Bonhoeffer, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return at any day, and all your work and suffering will be for nothing. Bonhoeffer replied, if Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I'll rest for my labor. But today I have work to do. I must continue the struggle. I like that. Five were ready. Five were prudent. Five were sensible. Five were reckless. Five were not ready. Five were not prudent. As a result, they were morons to the Lord, foolish and worthless to the heart. So what do we do? What do you and I do as a result? Let me show you and we'll close and pray. Romans chapter 13. Put up on the screen. It's verses 11 through 14. Paul writes this. And do this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The day is far spent, or rather the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Basically, Paul says we need to wake up, clean up, grow up, and look up. And we need to do that. That we would grow up in the things of the Lord and not miss the day. In light of this parable, Jesus is the first parable. He calls us to be ready. I heard a story of an important dignitary that went to a little country town and visited this one-room school. All of the students were greatly impressed that this person of great importance would come to visit them. As he was preparing to leave, he told the students that he would come again, but he didn't tell them when he would come back. But he added that he would bring a prize to the student uh, with the cleanest desk. Well, after he left, one little girl who was known to be the messiest of all uh, them announced that she was going to win the prize. Well, the other students laughed, and, and Mary always had a cluttered desk. There was trash all over it. It was disorganized on the inside. Everyone laughed. Yeah, sure, she'd be ready. She said, from now on, I'm going to clean my desk every Monday morning. And the student said, well, suppose the man comes on Friday. Well, then I'll clean it every morning. Someone said, well, what if he comes at the end of the day? She was quiet for a moment. Then her face lit up, and she said, I know what I'll do. I will keep my desk clean all of the time. I mean, that's it. That's how we need to live. When is Jesus going to come? 12 midnight? 12 this afternoon? It's about three minutes. Now, a year from now, keep your desk clean all the time. Keep your life right with him. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Jesus is coming soon. 
Bible says, he that has this hope, the hope of the Lord's coming, purifies himself even as he is pure. That's the idea that we should always be ready. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been coming for a while. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life, but you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never really completely turned your life over to him and asked him to forgive you of your sin and, 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 and you're walking. Maybe you've never done that. And God's word has touched your heart this morning. And you want to make sure that today's the day if Jesus would come back that you would not be left out. You would not have the door shut in your face. I want to give you this opportunity to come to Christ this morning. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for your word. Jesus, how powerful they are to show us how we need to be ready. We recognize your return is near. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone that has joined us this morning that is yet to, to come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior, they've, they've yet to completely surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again yet. And if you were to come back today, the door would be shut for them. Lord, I pray that they would open the door, that they would let you in. Your word says, that you stand at the door and knock, and anyone, anyone hears my voice and opens that door, you will come in and sup with him, dine with him. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would open the door of their hearts and their life to know you this morning. Well, I had to bow your eyes or close. Is there anyone here you want to make a commitment to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? You want your sin forgiven? If that's you, would just, just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning. This is just between you and the Lord Jesus. I want to know that I know that if I die, I'm going to heaven, that I'm born again today. Anybody at all? Lord, thank you for our salvation. Lord, help us all to be ready, to be looking up, to live, Lord, as if today's the day that we could spend eternity with you. Oh, what a joy, Lord, to hear the words of bridegroom is coming. Lord, come quickly, please, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.